Indeed, dear friends, the posture that we want to have before God is to kneel before Him as an act of submission. We may not do that physically in, in the physical act of healing when we're gathered together. Some churches may do that. But we definitely want to do it spiritually in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls as we come to the Lord and, and ask, Lord, we, we are your people. Have mercy upon us. With that attitude of, of, of reverent submission to the Lord, would you open God's word to the book of Isaiah chapter 63? We want to continue our sermon series through the book of Isaiah. If you're new to our congregation, if you're visiting for the first time, as a church, we're working through uh, different books of the Bible. Um, last two weeks, our associate pastor, Taylor Worley, t- took us through the book of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, today, we are back in the book of Isaiah. We'll be today and next week uh, in the book of Isaiah. We are almost at the end of this book. I promised at the beginning of the sermon series, I made a commitment to the U.S. congregation, that I would commit to finish the series in less than a hundred sermons. Well, we're almost at the end of Isaiah, and it's been 49 sermons. So we are way well in uh, making that commitment. Here is God's word this morning for us as a congregation. Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in apparel, in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the greatness, great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he remembered them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? 
who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribe of your, of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? And our own hearts as we hear. Let's pray. Father, you remind us of the great promises you give and of the great acts of your faithfulness and love. Father, speak to our hearts this morning in a way that Christ would be exalted in our hearts, in a way that our minds may be drawn to your greatness, to your glory, and to your might. We pray this for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, our scripture passage this morning puts us face to face with two aspects of God that might seem contradictory. His vengeance and his love. We are tempted to think of these aspects as opposites. These attributes don't seem to go together. If anything, they seem contradictory. Love and vengeance. When it comes to God, when we think of God, both of them are present in Him. He is a God both of love and of vengeance. And therefore, the passage this morning that we have read captures these two aspects together so well Therefore, we have entitled the message this morning, God's Vengeance and Love. As we look at this passage, there are three points, three lessons we learn about these truths that, that seem to be like, like opposite, opposites, and yet they are together held in the same chapter. The three, three truths that we will look at this morning are the following. God's vengeance is part of His salvation. God's vengeance is part of His salvation. Truth number two, remembering God's love stirs our yearnings. Remembering God's love stirs our yearnings. And the truth number three, yearning for God means seeking His attention and His return. Yearning for God means seeking His attention and His return. As we look at this chapter, we will recognize that these truths are are weaved in and, and present in this chapter that brings us to 
to the end or close to the end of this book. We will see in this, in this chapter a, a closing section and, and a beginning section. The closing of, of a season, of a, of a section in Isaiah that has spoken about God's restoration to His people. And then the beginning of Isaiah's final prayer uh, that, that is in this book. Let's look at the first point. God's vengeance is part of His salvation. The passage we just read includes a, the last portrait of Christ in the book of Isaiah. Throughout this book, we have seen prophecies that predicted the coming of Jesus. Christ has been foreshadowed in this book in some amazing ways. Christ was foreshadowed through the images of a, of a promised king who would bring an un, a kingdom of unending peace and an unending light to a world that has been covered with darkness. Christ was foreshadowed through the image of a suffering servant who would take upon himself the sins of God's people, and by his wounds, God's people would be healed and restored. God was also foreshadowed through the images of of an anointed proclaimer who would declare freedom to captives. We have seen each of these portraits in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 61. And each of these portraits foreshadows an aspect of the ministry of Christ. Now in chapter 63, we see the last portrait of Christ foreshadowing the future mission of Jesus, namely to bring about God's vengeance. This chapter begins with Isaiah asking, as if he was uh, one of the watchmen earlier in chapter 62, we have seen how the anointed one promised that part of his restoration is to set watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem to watch against the enemy when the enemy would be coming or to protect the the city of, of Jerusalem. And it's as if Isaiah is taking on the role of, of one of those watchmen. And he is, he is asking, who is he who is coming from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? The warrior who hears this question answers, gives us his identity. And he describes himself as, as having gone and executed vengeance. But notice that part of his description and the way he speaks about his vengeance is that it's part of the redemption that he brings. Look at verse 1. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The warrior coming to his people is a warrior able to save his people. But the highlight of his salvation in this chapter is his vengeance. The vengeance against the enemies of God's people. The vengeance that this warrior executes is part of the salvation that he brings to God's people. The connection between vengeance and salvation shows up again in verse 4. Look in verse 4, the warrior says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Do you see how these truths are held together in the same sentence? The, 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 the day of vengeance 
and the year of redemption. And then verse 5, we see this again. Uh, vengeance and salvation spoken together. The warrior says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. The same truth of vengeance and salvation was declared earlier in Isaiah 59, where, where the people of God have, uh, where, where the Lord show, sees the, the brokenness of the people of God, and the Lord says, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then, here's God's solution, then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. And listen to how he describes himself. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing. Interesting how both salvation and vengeance are described together in this armor of the divine warrior in chapter 59 in Isaiah. And then now we see it as the warrior shows up after the vengeance is executed. And he combines these pictures of salvation and vengeance together. Friends, this shows us that the wrath of God is part of the larger picture of the salvation that God brings. But may I say to you, today we live in a day and age where we would like to think of God's salvation separate from his vengeance and wrath. Did you know that this is not a new idea? This is not a, a postmodern notion or, 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 or problem. Uh, even even a, almost a century ago, in the early 1900s, a German liberal theology that invaded the American continent brought the, the demise or the attack that we cannot think about the wrath of God. There's no way we, we can think about God as wrathful. That is not the... the the God of the Bible, so much so that one of the theologians in the 1930s um, described the Protestant liberal theology in the following way. This, this was how Protestant liberal theology has been described in the early 1900s. A God without wrath brought a man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. That's how liberal theology would want us to embrace God. A God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without the cross. But what we see in the Bible, dear friends, is that salvation and vengeance and wrath are not separate. They're not Enemies, these are not foes. We don't have to think through how do we put these together. Both are upheld in Scripture. And this means, dear friends, that God's salvation and His wrath do not exclude one another. He's both a God of salvation and of wrath. He accomplishes both. God saves His people by abolishing that which threatens them. In our text, the enemy is presented as the land of Edom. You might be wondering, why? why is this warrior presented as coming from Edom? Well, Edom was a neighboring region. 
the southern part of Israel. And Bozrah was the capital of Edom. Edom was not as big of a nation as Babylon or Assyria or Egypt. But Edom, Edom was a small country, a small region just south of Israel. But every time, every time a major enemy would threaten God's people, would attack God's people, Edom was always there, constantly opposing God's people as well. Edom, without being a big country, they were, like, they were there right next to them, constantly opposing the people of God. Actually, the rivalry between Edom and God's people goes back to Jacob and Esau. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Throughout the Bible, Edom is, is shown, has shown constant and a long-term hatred toward God's people. So much so that Edom is used in the Old Testament as a representative of all those who respond harshly towards God's people. As one pastor once said, our true loyalty stands out in the way we treat God's people. So Edom, even though they were neighboring land to Israel, always sided with God's enemies. And now the warrior is portrayed as coming from Edom. He has executed vengeance and has dealt a deadly blow to those who have been opposing God and his people. The emphasis of God's vengeance is also um, here shown in the fact that the warrior is carrying this vengeance alone. Do you see how the divine warrior mentions that no one was there to help him? In verse 3, he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. In verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. My wrath upheld me. It's one of the key tenets of the Christian faith is that Christ obtains both our salvation and our vengeance alone. We do not contribute to the salvation that God earns for us through Jesus. And at the same time, just as our salvation is obtained by Christ alone, so also his vengeance is carried out by Christ alone, without any human help. Perhaps this is the reason why, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, vengeance belongs to God, not to us. We contribute nothing to our salvation, and we contribute nothing to helping Him execute His vengeance. The visions of God's vengeance in these verses foreshadow the vengeance that Christ will execute at the end of the age. Have you heard people who say, well, the, the wrath of God is just an idea in the Old Testament? And oftentimes, uh, even, even some pastors might preach in a way that would pit the Old Testament against the New Testament, that somehow we have a, a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. Well, let's go to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11. You don't have to turn there. We've already read this passage earlier in the service. 
But this is what John, the Apostle John, sees about Christ at the end of the age. The Apostle John presented Jesus or saw Jesus as a divine warrior. And this is the words that John used to describe the divine warrior, Christ. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, the white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, Christ will, will appear at the end as a divine warrior who will crush, who will destroy every manifestation of rebellion and evil. This means, dear friends, that we too need to consider who is this Christ? Who is he who is coming from Eden? Do you know him? Are you on his side? Will any of us prove to be on the opposite so that Christ might approach us as, as an enemy? Oh, friends, I pray that none of us would face that day, that final day of God's uh, sending of his Son in a visible manifestation, and when he would appear to us as a warrior whose, whose sword would be swung against any of us. Friends, the gospel is a good news that God has sent Jesus first to earth, not as a divine warrior, but as a divine Savior. That in Jesus, God has poured all the wrath of our sins so that anyone who would return, repent, who would return from their indifference, from their ignorance, from their rebellion against God, anyone who would turn away and, and place their trust in Christ, all of those would be saved. And they would await Christ, not as a divine warrior against them, but as the one who would wage vengeance on their behalf against all their enemies. Oh, dear friends, if you have not turned to Christ, if you have not professed repentance of sin and reliance on Christ for your salvation, I would encourage you to do so today. Do not wait for the day that Christ would appear as a divine warrior against all those who have continued to live in rebellion against Christ. If you'd like to know more how to respond to that, we would love to talk to you as soon as the service is dismissed. Come and talk to me or to any of our pastors or go and speak to someone that you know from this congregation if you know one already. Friends, don't ignore this warning that we get in this passage that Christ will show up again. And when he comes again, he will show up as a God who will vindicate and execute vengeance against all of God's enemies, against all those who have opposed God's people. God's vengeance 
is part of his salvation. The second truth we see in this passage is that remembering God's love stirs our yearnings. Remembering God's love stirs our yearnings. Once God's vengeance against his enemies has been described with such great certainty, Isaiah continues. It's as if there's a change. Continue, he, Isaiah continues by remembering God's love for his people. Look at verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For Isaiah, remembering God's love was not just a matter of feelings, but of proven acts from the history of God's people. What makes Isaiah's reflection on God's love powerful at this moment are two things. First of all, notice how Isaiah is reflecting on the love of God in the past right after we got this passage about the vengeance of God. You see how, how Isaiah is holding both of these truths together, the vengeance and the love of God. But the second thing that makes Isaiah's um, recollection of God's love powerful in this verse is that when Isaiah reflected on God's love, the circumstances of God's people were awful. They were awful. Look at verse verse 18 and 19 at the end of this chapter. How, How the people of God were like when Isaiah is choosing to recount God's love. Here's how they were like. Isaiah says, Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. So when Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, Isaiah is doing that while verse 18 and 19 describe accurately their circumstances. In other words, Isaiah is not recounting the steadfast love of the Lord by looking inside himself at his own feelings to see if he feels the love of God inside of him. Also, he's not looking at the current situation he's in as proof of God's love. No, Isaiah is looking elsewhere. Isaiah is looking at God's actions in the past, in the history of how God dealt with his people. Friends, let this be a challenge for any of us who might feel tempted to gauge God's love for us based only on what we feel or based on our current circumstances. Instead, do what Isaiah did. Take a broader view of how God has been dealing with his people, not just with you and I, but with his people in the history of of the Bible. This longer view gives us a better lens of understanding God's love. As Isaiah recounted God's abundant love for his people, the one feature Isaiah brings out is not just God's love, but also the rebellion of God's people. Did you notice that? In verse 10, after, after Isaiah describes how God has been faithful, and loving, and compassionate, and involved with redeeming the first generation of Israelites, verse 10 is like a cold shower. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. 
the first generation of Israelites responded to God's love and mercy by rebelling against God. And they grieved the Holy Spirit. And the consequences of their rebellion against God is described in verse 10. Therefore, he, referring to God, turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Friends, pause here for a moment. This teaches us that God's children should never take God's love for granted or presume upon it and use it as an excuse to live carelessly or in rebellion against God. God will not allow His rebellious children to go unpunished. So, Isaiah says, God fought against His people. What a terrible situation to be in, to have God as your enemy. By God's grace, God's story doesn't end there. Isaiah goes on in verse 11 and says, Then he, referring to God again, Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. In other words, God did not act as an enemy against his people forever. For they were his own people. Isaiah is recounting how despite the rebellion, despite the punishment, despite the discipline that God brought against the first generation of Israelites, God was still faithful to bring his people to the promise that God made them and to give them rest in the promised land. It is true that the first generation of Israelites were actually forbidden. They actually actually did not make it into the promised land. But the second generation did. The second generation received the promises God made so that God was faithful to bring His people to His promises even if the first generation of Israelites blew it off. God's promises did not fail to be accomplished. Why not? Based on what? Was it based on any change that the Israelites made? No. It was not based on any any change the Israelites have made. It was based on the change that God made. He chose to remember His covenant. He chose to remember His promises. And then He chose to do the, verse verse 14, Isaiah says, So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. This is why God remained faithful to His promises. Not for the sake of the people, but in order to make a glorious name for Himself. This means, dear friends, that the ultimate motivation of God's love For us, it's not our well-being. The glory of His name is the ultimate motivation why God has acted in love and faithfulness even when His people have failed. But why is Isaiah remembering all this? Why is he recounting all this? Recounting the love of God, the rebellion of God's people, and then still the faithfulness of God? Here's why. Because such remembrance stirred up Isaiah's affections and yearnings to ask God to do it again in Isaiah's own generation. Remembering God's love and faithfulness, even when dealing with a rebellious generation, gave Isaiah confidence to ask God to do it again in his circumstances. Look at the question Isaiah asks in verse 11. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in them 
uh, in, the, in the midst of them, His Holy Spirit, who caused His glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for Himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Now, this is a key question. Where is He? This question is a window into Isaiah's heart. Where is He who has done such great things? Now, Isaiah is not asking this question because he's mad at God. Isaiah is not asking this question as if he didn't know where God was. After all, a few verses later, we know that Isaiah knows that God is in heaven. When Isaiah is asking this, where is he who has acted this way? This question is more like a a question that yearns for the God who acted mightily in the past to show up again and do it. Because he's a God who has done the impossible. And Isaiah believes that God can do the impossible again. Where is he? Isaiah is recounting these great acts of God by which God redeemed his people and yearned for God to show up and do the same. Oh, friends, Isaiah recognizes that if God's people were going to be redeemed, God would have to show up and do another what seemed like an impossible rescue. Friends, have you ever yearned for God this way? Have you ever let your heart meditate on God's glorious acts as recorded in Scripture and yearn for God to say and say, Lord, show up again in might and power? Friends, do you cultivate in your heart experiences of meditating and remembering God's greatness as He displayed it in the past? Today, many Christians are inclined to think, That if God no longer is working today as He has in the past, then perhaps He's not worth pursuing today or not worth being devoted to Him in the same way. But Isaiah would have none of that. Quite the opposite. Isaiah cultivated his yearning for God by remembering God's mighty acts in the past. Do you do that? Do you let your yearnings for God be determined by how intense you feel in the moment? Or do you allow your yearnings for God to be determined by the testimony of what God has acted and done for us? So that no matter how you feel today or tomorrow, and no matter how you, what you experience in your life, oh friends, we may actually let our hearts and the yearnings of our hearts be guided not by ourselves, by what we have, but what, by God, what God already revealed to us. So many, so many Christians today fall in the trap of allowing your, their yearnings for God to be determined by their sentimental experiences. A feeling loved by God. Isaiah would have none of it. If there's anyone who had reasons to feel unloved by God, it was Isaiah during the exile. And Isaiah even gives us a sense of that a little later when he says, I feel like your zeal, your compassion is withheld from me. And yet, nevertheless, Isaiah makes a commitment to recount the love of God in the past. Friends, here's one of the things that I do in my own walk with the Lord to stir up my yearnings for God. First, I commit to read Scripture regularly. Being regularly in God's Word. 
Sometimes reading long portions of Scripture, sometimes reading short portions, but, but more, more often. But a commitment to read God's Word so that as, as we recount the stories of what God has done in the past, our hearts may be stirred for affections to yearn for God. But there's something else I do besides reading Scripture. I love reading Christian biographies of people who have a big view of God and a big commitment to God's revelation. Right now, I'm reading a biography of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, it's a fairly long biography. A few weeks ago, when, when John Fulmer was here, he, uh, he got me hooked on reading the biography uh, of, of uh, Judson's life uh, to the Golden Shores. As soon as I'm done with Jonathan Edwards, I'm going to be reading that biography. Why do I read biographies? Because I love reading accounts of how God has acted in the past, in the lives of other believers, so that as, as they encountered God in their lives, in their difficulties, in their journeys, my own heart might be continued to be stirred up in affections for the God who has acted mightily in the history of his people. Oh, friends, I want to encourage you to ask, I want to encourage you to ask what is it that you do to stir up your affections for the Lord? Do you just look inside of yourself? Do you just let your feelings determine those yearnings? Do you look around you at your circumstances? Oh, friends, there is a more sure foundation. That is the Word of God. And the evidences that we see in the history of God's people to see the mighty acts of the Lord. Isaiah recounts God's love. Friend, find regular time in your weekly life when you cultivate and reflect deeply at God's love and faithfulness through His Word and through reading of how God has acted in the past. Lastly, the last point we want to see in this passage is yearning for God means seeking His attention and His return. This is what Isaiah's yearning looked like. Starting with verse 15, we actually start the final prayer in the book of Isaiah. In verse 15, we actually see the first request that Isaiah makes before God in the final prayer of the book. As a matter of fact, this prayer extends all the way to chapter 64. We're going to look at this prayer in its entirety by God's grace next week. But Here's what I want to leave you with. This prayer is a sign of what it means for Isaiah's affections to be yearning for God. The first way we see Isaiah's affections stirred up for the Lord is that it drives Isaiah to prayer. It drives Isaiah to seek God's attention and to seek his return. We see in, in these verses, there's only two requests Isaiah makes in verse 15 and 17. In verse 15, Isaiah says, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Now, it's interesting that Isaiah makes this request. Of course, God looks down from heaven. He knows everything. He sees everything. None of us can hide from his sight. And yet, there's, a, there's something unique about this request. When Isaiah asks God, look down from heaven and see, it shows that Isaiah valued God's looking at his people. Isaiah knew that God looks toward his people all the time. But in requesting this now, Isaiah believes that in looking to God's people and to their plight, God might consider their situation once again. 
And Isaiah knows. What Isaiah yearns is for God's attention. In, in, verse, um, in, in verse 16, we see the grounds why, why, God, why Isaiah yearns for God's attention. He says, because you are our father. Abraham doesn't know us. Israel doesn't acknowledge us. Now, you know what's interesting about this? Humanly speaking, Abraham is their father. Humanly speaking, biologically speaking, they're all coming out of Abraham. And yet, here's Isaiah saying, Abraham doesn't know us. Israel doesn't acknowledge us. It's as if Isaiah would say, listen, if Abraham were to wake up from the Sheol, from from the ground to see us, he wouldn't recognize us. That's how bad we have gotten. God, you are our father. You are the one who made us. Isaiah shows confidence not in earthly ties, not in ethnic belongings, not in ancestral lines, but Isaiah, Isaiah shows confidence and he shows his entire reliance upon the Lord as Father. No wonder that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. The last prayer of the book of Isaiah, the last prayer that we get in this book, presents God in heaven as our Father. Oh, friends, Isaiah also shows his yearning for God as he is requesting that God would return. We see this in verse 17. Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the the tribes of your heritage. The first part of this verse may puzzle us, may it seem on the surface that Isaiah might be accusing God for hardening their hearts. This is not an accusation against God. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at at this problem a little more more carefully. But the second part of the verse 17 tells us the clue. Isaiah is asking God to return to his people for the sake of God's servants. Isaiah realizes that God is in control even of their own rebellious hearts. The solution Isaiah has is not merely to ask his people to return to God, but to ask God to return to his people. For Isaiah knows this, that the only hope for a rebellious people to be healed of their rebellion is if God turns towards them in favor. Otherwise, rebellious people would never come back to the Lord out of their own free will. Friends, we, ought, we often might be thinking or tempted to think that we just need God to take care of problems in our lives, fix a challenge here and there. But Isaiah's request and yearnings show us that our need is greater than just fixing our problems. We don't need merely for our problems to be fixed. We need God to return to us. How often are your prayers only for God to fix something rather than asking God to return, to restore, to revive, to change us, not just our situations? Next week, by God's grace, if the Lord keeps us alive, we will look at the rest of Isaiah's prayer. And here's a, here's a clue. This prayer that Isaiah prays in chapter, the end of chapter 63 and chapter 64, it's really a prayer of confession of sin and intercession. Isaiah recognizes that he needs to come before the Lord to inter- intercede for the sin of God's people. Friend, ask yourself, Do you just want God to fix something in your life? 
Or are you yearning for God's return, for God's presence, for God's nearness, for God to turn us towards Him, and for God to return to us so that His presence might be daily in our lives? For Isaiah, his yearning for God was a yearning for God's attention and for His return. Oh, friends, this morning we have considered these truths about about God's vengeance and God's love. They are part of His salvation, both of them. We've also considered the reality that we need God in our lives. We need God to, to turn towards us. The only way we can be restored is if God would act again in a fresh and new way. The gospel of the Lord Jesus tells us that in, in a fantastic way, God has already answered Isaiah's prayer when he sent Jesus Christ to be with his people. But Jesus' first return is just the first of his two. He's coming again. He's coming to make all wrong things right. Until that day comes, we are called to yearn for his return. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God who indeed has made promises to make all wrong things right. Father, we praise you that both your salvation and your wrath, you execute by yourself alone. And you grant these to us. And you grant these for us so that your people, by benefit of your restoration, Father, we pray that you would do so. We pray that you would restore your people. We pray that you would restore every one of us. We pray that you would revive our hearts and our minds and our souls to be yearning for you. Father, we pray that in your grace, you would look towards us with favor, turning our hearts to you so that we might worship you and we might live our lives for the glory of your great name. In the name of Christ, we pray.